listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning and welcome to episode 38 of Footprints on Our Hearts, which is going out on the 16th of October, but I'm actually recording this episode the day before on the 15th of October, which is the final day of Baby Loss Awareness Week and the day in which we light candles to create a wave of light in the evening to remember all those lost babies. So I have another solo show for you this week. Um, I know I've had quite a few of these recently and I wasn't actually planning to do one today. I promise normal interview episodes will resume soon. But um, I did want to put this out today for a couple of reasons. Firstly, so I can tell you about my experiences of the past few weeks while I'm still kind of in the thick of it, so to speak, and before sleepless nights suck the memories from my mind. And secondly, I'm waiting for a few episodes to come through. So I had a bit of a scheduling gap to fill. So I'll be honest with you there. Um, You know, I did try and plan ahead as much as I possibly could um, before going into hospital. Um, But, you know, there are always things you can't quite plan for. So I hope you don't mind hearing my voice again. And obviously, if you're not interested in this episode or what I'm talking about, then just feel free to skip this week and Tune in next week for a regular episode. Before we get started, I wanted to give a huge big shout out to all the people who support the podcast on Patreon, and in particular to this week's new patron, Julie. Um, And Julie is mum to Wallace, um, and Wallace was very sadly stillborn in August last year. So thank you so much, Julie, for helping to support the podcast in Wallace's memory. And thank you to all my patrons. I'm so grateful to you for helping me to continue producing this podcast and to help me share these stories of baby loss. And if you would like to become a patron of the show, you can find out more by going to www.patreon.com forward slash footprints on our hearts. So today I'm going to be talking about my rainbow baby, my son Rowan. And if you're on Instagram, if you follow me on Instagram, you you will probably already be aware um, of his arrival into the world. Um, If you're not and you just listen listen to the podcast, um, we were lucky enough to welcome him to the world a few weeks ago. Um, I didn't mention it on last week's episode because that was a, a pre-recorded episode that I that I'd arranged um, before going into hospital to have him. And wow, we are we are just so incredibly grateful to have been privileged enough to have been able to bring home. Um, a living sibling for Sky, um, her little brother. Um, and, you know, it's been a whirlwind few weeks. And I think that's partly what I wanted to talk about today. Um, but we are, yeah, I think through it all, we're just so, so grateful to have him here. And I have recorded a couple of episodes talking about my experience of pregnancy after loss. And 
really what this episode is, is just a short episode to kind of carry that through to the end to talk about the final week of my pregnancy, which was for me probably the hardest week, to talk a bit about Rowan's birth and the first few weeks of parenting after loss. And as always, it is an honest account of my feelings and experiences, the good, the bad and the ugly, though I will try not to get too graphic about things. So to start off, let's talk about the final weeks of pregnancy. Um, So because of the concerns raised during my pregnancy about possible placenta issues and obviously my history, we had a planned induction at 38 weeks. And in some ways, it was useful to have that as a date to work towards. It meant we could plan to finish work, find someone to look after our cat and kind of get everything ready in time. But I have to admit, I really wasn't looking forward to being induced again. I think not not just because, you know, I'd have quite liked the kind of whole natural going into labour experience, but also because my previous memory of being induced was, was when I was induced with Sky. And although from a birth perspective, it was fairly straightforward, I think just all the kind of trauma and feelings of loss around that, I was I was worried that they would come up again. And not only that, but as we're still under COVID restrictions, we weren't sure how much of my labour my husband would be able to be present for. So I had a lot of anxieties in the final few weeks leading up to the birth. And some might sound silly, but I'm going to list the main ones here anyway, because I think if there's one thing I know that if I'm thinking it, then someone else has probably thought it or is thinking it as well. And if you're currently pregnant after a loss and, you know, you're you're approaching your final weeks or even if you're earlier in your pregnancy, I don't know. I wanted to share my experience. So if you have similar feelings or anxieties or concerns, you know, you don't feel like you're being silly and you don't feel like you're the only one having these worries. So some of my worries and fears that that propped up. Um, I worried that I'd have a long drawn out induction um, that would potentially end in C-section. I was pretty prepared for this. I mean, I packed clothes for like a week going into hospital and I kind of mentally prepared, you know, to be in there for, you know, potentially up to five days. But then I also had a fear, and this came up a few times in my mind, that my labour would be really quick and that my husband would miss the birth because he wouldn't be allowed in for the first part um, and he wouldn't get there in time in, in time for the actual birth. I had some anxieties around the vaginal examinations you have to have as part of an induction. Um, and actually, earlier on, I wasn't really that concerned about this. I was just like, oh, well, it's just something you get on with. But As the kind of time got closer, I found I was having kind of some quite traumatic flashbacks um, to when I had to have a manual placenta removal after giving birth to Skye. And I think although I didn't really realise it at the time or even afterwards, I, I actually found that quite quite violating almost and that wasn't because of the staff you know they obviously got consent for everything and were very good about it but you know I think there's something around having multiple people come along and stick their hands up inside you and having a good feel around in there that you know I think I think that just for me that that felt quite traumatic 
Um, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to deal with the pain of labour again. You know, I do remember Sky's um, labour being being painful, you know, probably the most painful thing I've been through. And I was worried about that being more prolonged. I had a big fear that the CTG machine would break or the midwife wouldn't pick up an issue with his heart rate and we'd lose him. I think that was that was one of my big ones, like that, that they would go out the room, that I wouldn't know that something was wrong and, you know, we'd either end up having this sort of crash C-section or that we'd be told, you know, he had died during labour. And then... I was worried about being left alone on a ward afterwards. So, you know, if once we got through the birth and not being able to look after him or not knowing how to look after him and being left alone to deal with that. And, you know, and also that fear that he would die, that the bereavement suite wouldn't be available, that I'd be on the postnatal ward with my dead baby. And, you know, I'm sure that would not occur in any situation. It was really one of those kind of irrational fears and anxieties. But still, you know, it's, you know how it is at the dead of night or when you're trying to get to sleep and these ideas pop into your head and you really struggle to to get rid of them. And I do think that overall, I did a reasonable job of managing to control my anxiety during most of my pregnancy. Um, But a lot of these fears did spring up, usually at night. And, you know, I would play over those scenarios in my mind. And I think the other thing which I struggle to think about, which I think I did mention in my pregnancy after loss episode, was that during my pregnancy, and in particular during the sort of early stages, every time... I thought about the possibility of my baby being born alive, I would become completely overwhelmed with emotion. Um, Like I I literally, I could not think about it because it was, it felt too overwhelming. And that did ease a little bit later in my pregnancy. I think, I think as it became more of a reality, we, you know, we got past those markers. We were having all these scans that, you know, if there were any issues, they would have been picked up. And I began to feel perhaps that, you know, we would be bringing this this baby home. I was able to visualize that moment without immediately choking up. Um, But then again, in the final week, I got to the stage where I refused to think about it in case that would somehow jinx things. And again, you know, it's completely irrational. What I think or what I don't think is not going to affect whether my baby survives or not. But um, but in my mind, I was just, you know, lining up everything that I could possibly do to, you know, to, to make sure that he would be coming home with us. So as you probably realise, like quite a few of my concerns were around not having my husband there. And I felt that that was something that I could do something about. So at my final midwife appointment, um, I had spoken to my midwife earlier about this. And I'd spoken to my consultant about it, actually, and asked if they would be able to make an exemption on our behalf, given what we've been through. And the consultant was quite dismissive, actually. And he, he was kind of like, well, not sure, you know, it might depend on how things are on the day, but probably not. You know, that's what the rules are. But my midwife was really supportive. And at my final appointment before I went in, I asked her if she'd be able to put a request in for my husband to be allowed in for the full period of the induction. And she agreed and she emailed the head of the labour ward and my request copied me into the email. So 
uh, which meant I got the email address and the name of, I guess, the, the person who was in charge of that decision. And I didn't hear anything back for a few days. I tried to be patient. Um, but then when I hadn't heard anything back, I sent a rather long and probably over detailed email directly to the head of the labor ward explaining about Sky, explaining the challenges we'd faced during our pregnancy and our anxieties around the induction. And a few days later, just a few days before we were due to go into hospital, I did get a reply, a lovely reply from her. um, And she followed up with a phone call um, saying that we would be given a room on labor ward for the duration of my induction, which meant that my husband could come in with me. And honestly, I nearly wept in relief. And I know how lucky we are and how privileged we are to have got that. I know, you know, a lot of a lot of mothers, most mothers sort of during this time of COVID haven't had that, haven't been able to have their partners in with them. Even, you know, mothers who have suffered a previous loss. Um, so I do feel incredibly grateful to the, you know, to hospital for for making that happen for us. And as things turned out, we did have the most amazing care from the midwives on the ward. Um, and, you know, I think, again, we were lucky that it wasn't too busy. Because um, I think, obviously, if they'd have been overwhelmed, if it had been a bigger hospital, um, and they'd have had a lot more people coming into Labour Ward, then they would have had to have moved us. And of course, we would have, you know, understood um, that's the situation. But again, luck was on our side because of that. And I do feel that, you know, having that room and the care we received made a huge difference to our birth experience. Um, yes, we got special treatment, but honestly, I felt like we needed it. So if you are pregnant in a similar situation, um, I really would recommend finding out who's in charge of that decision making, who the person is, whether you can contact them and pushing your case with them to get the care that you feel you need. And, you know, I can't promise you'll be successful. It does vary from hospital to hospital. It depends on, you know, who, you know, the individual's concerned, but it's always worth asking that question. And then, you know, if you don't get the answer you want, maybe asking again or asking someone different. So it's definitely about finding the right person. I also wanted to mention the Birthrights website, which I found really useful in being able to refer to our rights in that email. And, you know, pandemic or no pandemic, you do have certain rights around the birth of your child, around your right to family life. Um, And, you know, don't, don't feel like you can't push that. Um, You know, I am not really a person who is pushy in that regard. I tend to just take what I'm given, but I felt strongly enough in this situation that we needed that extra support. And I'm so glad that, you know, I did send that email and we asked for that. I can't really describe how I felt during the days before going into hospital other than weird. I was super emotional. I wasn't quite sure why, but it felt like I spent the best part of two days crying. And I do wonder, looking back, if a lot of that was hormonal, if I had a bit of a hormonal surge, perhaps my body was was preparing for labour, and that was possibly part of it. It probably didn't help that I was still busy trying to get podcast episodes scheduled and recorded, so I was surrounded by baby loss stories. Um, at a time when I probably really needed to be thinking about, um, you know, about positive birth stories um, 
and and trying to think positively about my experience and preparing for that. And although I didn't feel at the time like I was overly anxious, I think actually I was. It was just kind of buried inside because I was trying to get all this other stuff done. Um, But basically, I just didn't feel like myself at all. And I found it quite hard because I was getting a lot of messages from family and friends who were getting excited and thought that I'd be getting excited, you know, about finally getting to meet our baby. When in reality, I just wanted it to be over and I wanted our son to be safely here. But at the same time, part of me wanted to keep him safe inside me so I didn't have to face the challenges that parenting would bring. And I know that sounds very strange in a weird juxtaposition, um, but again, I'm I'm mentioning it in case anyone else kind of feels the same. Um, And I have actually, I did actually speak to another mother who felt similarly emotional and not really like herself um, in those sort of few days leading up to the birth. So it might not be as uncommon as I thought at the time, but I actually found it quite scary as I was worried it would continue after the birth and essentially I'd I'd be a mess. I wouldn't be able to enjoy having the baby here um, or look after him properly because I was feeling so, you know, overwhelmed with emotion. Um, And Although I did, I do feel I managed my anxiety quite well, the final day or two, my anxiety was really high um, to the extent that I actually ended up going into the maternity assessment unit the afternoon, in fact, late afternoon before my induction, as I hadn't felt um, the baby move much. Uh, typically, you know, and that wasn't, that was anxiety, but it was also that I hadn't felt it move that much. You know, I had been tracking movements on my kicks count band. And typically, he picked that day to have a bit of a quiet day. Um, and I did um and ah about going in. I was like, I'm sure it's fine. But as my husband said at the time, you know, we'd come that far. We'd come that far. It wasn't worth not going in to get checked out. Because, you know, if there was anything at all that they picked up that was wrong, we'd have been able to get admitted. You know, if we needed to have an emergency C-section, we could have had it. And, you know, we would never, ever have forgiven ourselves if we had waited until the next day and something had been wrong and we would have missed it. So we did go in, we got checked out, it was okay. Um, And then we went home to, yeah, to prepare and rest up for the induction. So the next day we went into hospital, got settled in our room, and I had the sort of first of those examinations and the pessary inserted. Um, The midwife sounded very positive that my cervix was favourable, in inverted (laughs) quote marks. Um, And actually, I started feeling tightenings very quickly after, you know, after having that medication. Um, And they intensified during the afternoon. And I was starting to think about getting the TENS machine um, that I brought with me out, when suddenly they faded. And part of me was a bit relieved at that as, you know, there was a bit of a reprieve there. It was quite nice to not be in pain anymore for a bit. But another part was a little bit frustrated um, that, you know, things seemed to be going so quickly and smoothly. um, And then it then stopped. So anyway, we figured we might be in for a quiet night. So we started kind of settling down um, to get some rest. But then quite suddenly in the evening, later in the evening, those uh, tightenings came back. And this time they really were intense and proper contractions. 
And things went pretty quickly from that point. I remember my husband asking if I wanted the TENS machine. And I was like, no, it's too late. They're too strong. (laughs) It's not going to do anything at this point. Um, And, you know, I had a conversation with the midwife about uh, about monitoring the baby because we had, you know, part of our birth plan was to have constant CTG monitoring during labour. And the hospital did have a telemetry CTG, which is one of those where um, you're not actually wired up to the machine. You can get up and kind of walk around a bit. And that did also mean that I might be able to have the possibility of getting into the birthing pool, which was my kind of ideal scenario. And I did talk a bit about my birth plan in my last solo episode. Um, But I feel like I was quite realistic and pretty much covered all bases about what I wanted from my ideal situation to my preferences if I did end up having to have a a C-section, which I always kept at the back of my mind as a possibility. And I think as part of my preparation, I really tried not to be fixated on one plan. And I think that definitely helped me over the next few hours as, you know, as what typically happens during giving birth, things didn't go exactly to plan. So I got hooked up to the CTG. I had my hypnobirthing tracks running through my headphones and was on my knees leaning over a birthing pool, over a birthing ball, you know, trying to breathe through the contractions and and probably failing a bit, but (laughs) doing my best to, to get through those. I've been keen to try hypnobirthing this time around to see if it could help me manage the pain that I remembered from Sky's labour. And now I do know that some people have a pain-free birth and that isn't a myth. A friend of mine actually had that experience. So, you know, it does happen, but it's quite rare. And I'm not going to lie, labour was pretty bloody painful. Um, You know, I don't, and I don't think the hypnobirthing helped me with the pain. Um, you know, I wasn't really able to kind of breathe through those contractions. But what it did help me do was to relax between contractions. And I think um, I actually had a couple of different hypnobirthing tracks to listen to. And I ended up kind of abandoning the ones that you were supposed to listen to during birth and just having um, an affirmations track on repeat. And I think just having those going into my head and listening to them kind of gave me that faith and the boost I need to get through every, you know, each of the surges one at a time. And probably just having something else to focus on too. As I remember, if my earbud fell out, I was desperately scrambling for it and screaming at my husband to give it back to me, you know, so I could get through it. So I think having that thing to focus on really helped. Um, So if you haven't had a CTG before or been hooked up to this machine, it's basically, so it's a machine that tracks your baby's heart rate and also tightenings and surges. So you can see how your baby is responding as you have contractions. And it's basically, you have two round discs that are placed on your belly and they're held in place by elastic straps. Unfortunately with me, the discs kept flipping around or coming loose I think my bump was quite bumpy (laughs) for want of a better word so the trace kept getting interrupted Um, and the midwife actually ended up having to hold the the disc that was monitoring um, Rowan's heartbeat on my stomach manually but she was still struggling to get that reading and you know part I think a good part of that was because I was doing this rocking and forward which was a position I was in. 
So I ended up having to flip around, go out of this kind of nice burking position I was in and end up sort of lie propped up on my back, which if you've read anything about birthing positions, you'll know it's pretty much the worst position to be in. Um, but obviously our priority, my priority was to make sure that we could keep monitoring his heart rate um, and to make sure he was okay. So, you know, I went with it. Um, and as sort of things progressed and he got a bit lower, the midwife was still struggling to find his heartbeat, particularly during the surges. So um, between the surges, it was okay, but she was struggling to get it during the surges which is the really important part so they ended up putting a clip on his head which worked for a bit then that dropped out so we were back to the ctg um and i think i don't actually remember getting too stressed um which surprises me because this was you know this was like one of my biggest fears coming you know that they wouldn't be able to find his heartbeat um but i think i just i just had to have faith that they knew what they were doing that things would be okay and just focusing on getting through each of the surges um and by this point you know I'd given up on the pool birth um it definitely wasn't happening because they you know they they couldn't get his heartbeat with using that telemetry ctg um and I I was actually into full-on pushing mode with the midwife quite confident that he would be making a rapid appearance However, getting him out proved a bit trickier than I thought. Um, and I was struggling to get him around the, the U-bend, as I think one of the midwives referred to it as, and that kind of bit of the birth canal, which you just really need to kind of push in and get them out round. And around the same time, his heart rate started dropping quite significantly during each surge. So this had happened fairly early on, but the midwife wasn't too worried about it. But as things were taking longer um, to get him out um, and his heart rate was dropping lower and lower for longer, they began to get more worried. The doctor was called in and there were murmurings um, and talk of needing to speed things up and to get him out quickly. Um, and yeah, as I say, I mean, the staff were really so supportive they really helped me feel in control of the situation. Uh, they explained everything to the extent that I was just like, no, just I've got another contraction coming. Just get on with it. Just do what you need to do. Um, they said that we needed to get him out quickly. So I needed to push really hard, which I did for what felt like absolutely hours. Um, I lost track of the number of times they said, just one more big push in his head will be out. Um, I was really getting to the point where I just wanted to scream, you've said that about 50 times and it feels like we're no closer. And it really felt like, you know, I was, felt like I was literally pushing my guts out and we weren't really getting anywhere. Um, and I think that was certainly, I started to, to have a bit of a low point and started to wonder, you know, if I could actually do this or if we were, going to end up you know I think he might have even been too low for a c-section so I you know I don't know something else happened to happen and I was just I just remember being determined and exhausted and just trying each time to push harder to get him out and finally I did manage to get his head low enough for them to do an episiotomy to help um to help birth his head and that ended up having to be extended twice. Um, and then the doctor got called back in as they thought they might have to use a suction cup to get him out. 
Um, but again, they were really good. They gave me a few more pushes. <laughs> and I think the doctor was literally there ready. He's like, come on, you've got like two more pushes. And eventually um, I did manage to get him out. Um, and his cord was wrapped really tightly around his neck. Um, but once he was fully out, the midwife unwound it and placed him on my belly where he took his first cry and our little boy Rowan had arrived. Um, and honestly, having him there alive, squirming, crying, just that crying was amazing. Um, and it was honestly the the best feeling, even though I was completely exhausted. I was pretty lightheaded because I lost quite a lot of blood. And it just felt like all the anxiety of the past nine months, all the scans, all the injections, everything was worth it to finally have him here with us. Um, so they gave us a bit of time together. Um, and then, you know, I had to be stitched up and everything. I had to go on a drip because of the blood loss. Um, and once the placenta was delivered and, and all of that stuff was happening, and then they, you know, they took him away and weighed him. He weighed in at a very dinky six pounds, two ounces, which was quite a bit below the weight predicted by both hospitals we'd seen um, and all the scans we'd had during the pregnancy. But otherwise, he was perfectly healthy. And, you know, that's all that mattered. Um, so that was his birth. Um, he was born in the early hours of the morning, um, just after midnight. So we stayed in hospital an extra night because uh, I wanted to make sure the breastfeeding was established. And to be honest, because I was still exhausted and a bit scared of going home and having to cope on our own, um, you know, without that support network of, of having the midwives on call. But the morning after that, we were discharged. Um, our first challenge was how to fit him in the car seat, which I know must sound ridiculous and it doesn't sound hard, but he was so tiny and looked so scrunched up in it and that I was just scared he wouldn't be able to breathe. So we got one of the midwives to, to double check before we set off home. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad we did. She might have thought we were a bit paranoid parents or, you know, overly anxious, but you know, it's always worth getting these things checked out if you're not sure. Um, and yeah, and then we brought him home. And honestly, the first few weeks have passed in a bit of a blur. They have been amazing and exhausting and super emotional. Um, I still stare at him sometimes, struggling to believe that he's really here. And sometimes I wonder if I'm going to wake up and just find that it's all been some kind of dream and that we don't have him after all. I'd hope that my fears around losing him would diminish after he was born, but if anything, they've actually intensified. And it's less a kind of anxiety that's there all the time, but more a fear that hits me. And when it hits me, it's so strong and so intense that I I can't even breathe, I can barely breathe. It, it is so strong. And sometimes it's you know, a vision that I'm waking up and and finding him dead, cold in his cot. Or I'll be walking down the stairs and a thought will pop into my mind, what if I slipped and fell while carrying him? Or my husband will be holding him and I'll picture, literally picture Rowan slipping from his hands and falling to the floor. And the visions, they, they literally, they make my blood run cold because he's so little and so fragile and precious 
And the thought of losing him now is so terrible that I just don't think I could survive it. And fortunately, the fears are not constant. And I do try not to dwell on them. They do pass. Um, but it is really hard. And, you know, I do think, I mean, I think it, it maybe it's normal for any new parent to get those kind of fears. But I think particularly once you've experienced losing a child and you know how painful and traumatic that is, um, you know, you just know how much you have to lose. And then there's the sleepless nights, which I'm not going to complain about because let's face it, we've all had sleepless nights from grief. And given the choice between being kept awake by a living baby and being kept awake crying or reliving traumatic events or simply missing our babies who died, we would choose the privilege of a living child every time. But it is exhausting. I think for the first few days we were living on adrenaline, but the broken sleep did catch up on us by the end of the first week. Um, And certainly for almost the first two weeks, Rowan would only sleep at night on one of us. So we were kind of tag teaming sleep a bit. And part of me wanted him to settle in his Moses basket so we could both get a bit more sleep. But part of me also loved watching him in those midnight hours or the early hours of the morning while he slept, snuggled on my chest. And already he's changing and he's growing. And this time just seems so fleeting that we have to make the most of it. Given how I was feeling the week before Owen's arrival and that I've struggled with depression in the past, I was quite anxious about how I'd feel after his birth. And, you know, I was well aware of the baby blues, that hit of hormones you get around days three to five when your milk comes in and was kind of pleasantly surprised when that didn't seem to materialize. But as it turns out, they can come on later than that. And actually, um, they hit me around day eight or nine, uh, at which point I started crying or wanting to cry at pretty much anything. Uh, reading the news, looking at Rowan, watching David Attenborough on TV, then again watching sea lions throw themselves onto rocks because all the ice is gone. It's pretty traumatizing um, and pretty sad. Um, and this also coincided with the start of Baby Loss Awareness Month, um, which I'll talk about a bit more in a bit, but which definitely, I think, contributed to that general weepy and sad feeling. And I think because I need to expect it, the kind of weepy hormones, I haven't been too worried about them, though I think however much you prepare for it, it's still hard when you're actually going through it and having to also cope with the lack of sleep, a colicky baby who won't stop crying. Um, So I have been trying to be quite forgiving with myself about it. And fortunately, I have felt a bit better in the past day or two. So I'm quite hopeful that the worst of those has passed. And there's also the added dimension of parenting after loss, which really hits you in those early weeks. And I do feel that perhaps I haven't been as affected by this as parents who lose their babies at full term. A couple of people asked me if Rowan looked like Skye, and the honest answer is I don't know. I only held Skye for such a short time, and when I wasn't really in a mental state to take in much of how she looked whether her legs were long or short, whether her feet were big or small. And of course, we never saw her eyes. We didn't see her eyes open or what what colour eyes she had. And as I've mentioned before on the podcast, the photos we have of her weren't great. And I find it really hard to look at them as I struggle to see beyond her, you know, her dark wizened skin. 
and the trauma of, you know, holding her and seeing her. And it makes me sad that I don't know if Rowan takes after her and what similarities they would have shared. But I guess at the same time, the fact that she didn't look like a full-term baby means that I don't compare them as much as I might have done if, you know, if she had, had died at full term. That said, she's never far from my thoughts. And having Rowan has made me realise more than ever what we missed out on with Skye. Interestingly, we never got around to decorating the nursery for Sky, and after she died, my husband continued to use it as his office. It was only once I was well into the third trimester of being pregnant with Rowan that we cleared his stuff out and began decorating. And even right up until Rowan's birth, my husband referred to that room automatically as Sky's room, not the nursery, not Chickpea's room, which was our pet name for him. And even now, we tend to refer to it the nursery rather than his room although I'm sure that will change in time. But it did make me think about how much is it Skye's room as well as Rowan's room? Has she passed it on to her little brother or is it a room that they will share? And it's a question I think about when I'm sitting there nursing him, you know, in the night or during the day. And it's a question I think I'm still pondering and will probably think on for a while. Finally, I wanted to talk a bit about Baby Loss Awareness Week. I've seen quite a few posts on Instagram about people feeling guilty that they haven't been able to do more for Baby Loss Awareness Week and that they've had to take time out from social media for their own health and well-being. And I actually posted a similar message myself. When I first started the podcast, I had lots of ideas for things that I wanted to do during Baby Loss Awareness Week. But my pregnancy and Rowan's birth put pay to much of those most of those ideas and honestly that's not something that I can regret despite having him here in many ways I found baby loss awareness week harder this year than last year and I'm sure part of that is all the emotions and the hormones um, surrounding me after Rowan's birth and the feelings that his birth have stirred up around Sky's death But part of it is the feeling that I should be doing more with the podcast and more to speak out about baby loss, that I should be using this time as an opportunity to promote the podcast and make more people aware of it, that I should have had a whole week of episodes lined up rather than just this one short episode of of me talking to you. But I'm trying to forgive myself for this and for having to take a step back from Instagram and reading other people's stories, because I do find them triggering, particularly at the moment, and they make me feel more emotional and sad, particularly when the weepy hormones have been in full flow. And I know that these first few newborn weeks are so fleeting and go by so fast and are so precious that I just don't want to miss them. I don't want to bury myself in the online world and I don't want to bury myself in grief and loss and lose those moments of joy and happiness that I do get during these weeks. I've been really blessed to have been given this opportunity to have a rainbow baby. It's an opportunity that I know not everyone gets. And as much as I love and appreciate the baby loss community, Rowan and our family have to come first. So I hope you'll forgive me for not doing more this year. And if you're feeling in a similar position, I hope you'll forgive yourself too. We are not failing our babies by not speaking out or doing more. We're honouring them by taking care of ourselves first. 
And Baby Loss Awareness Week is just one week of the year. There are so many other times during the course of the year that we can talk about our babies, that we can speak out if we want to and feel able to do so. I hope the past week has been gentle on you. Tonight, I'm sure along with many of you, I will be lighting candles for Sky and for all the babies we hold in our hearts, but not in our arms. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>